0: Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Uh, we're talking, we've been talking
1: in our series about the triumph of Jesus' ministry. And the issue is, is that the church, and some of you might not have been to church very much or not at all, the church often is known for its celebrations of the advent of Jesus' uh, incarnation and being born. Also, of Good Friday and the atonement on the cross and what that means, that Jesus died for our sins, and that he takes God's wrath in our place. Uh, The resurrection, Easter Sunday, where Jesus rose again from the dead. And he uh, empowers us through that. He he conquered our victories. He conquered our uh, enemies, sin and death, on our behalf. And he rose again, uh, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent his spirit to live in us. And what we're talking about here in our series is exactly that. What does the church look like? What are we to look like when Jesus empowers us? and is an advocate for us through His Spirit, living in us and ministering to others through us. So we get a picture of that at the early church, especially in these early portions of Acts. We've been tracking along with that. Uh, this morning, what I'd like to do is open by thinking about a, uh, a screenwriter coach. His name is Robert McKee. He wrote a book called Story. If, uh, if you've enjoyed some of Pixar's films... Uh, a lot of the films in Hollywood have a great sort of progress to the storyline, an unfolding of that you're on the edge of your seat as things come up to hinder the hero's uh, progress in the story. And McKee has this down to a formula that he actually trains screenwriters and filmmakers in. And the, the formula is this uh, life is going along as normal, as usual. And our hero is going along life as normal, as usual. And something happens to disturb the normal flow of things. Something happens. And then the rest of the story is the unfolding of how our hero reacts against whatever's happening. And often uh, the best moments come at the end when there's final victory, a final sort of uh, wrapping up of all that's been going wrong. Well, that has a lot to do with our passage this morning. Our passage this morning deals with everything that stands against or many of the things that stand against the progress, the triumph of Jesus' ministry in your life, in our lives. And we see it in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to be talking briefly this morning about those three things that threaten his triumph in your life. We're going to talk about acclaim, we're going to talk about obsession, and we're going to talk about deceit. Acclaim, obsession and deceit. First of all, a claim. Verse 2 says that Ananias brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right? Now, what was going on here? Ananias and Sapphira were intentionally trying to look generous in front of those in charge. Intentionally trying to look generous when in, in reality they held some back. Right, you understand what happened? In the, in the story, Ananias and Sapphira said, okay, I see what's going on in our community. There are those who are seeing needs in the community, and they're going out, and they're being kind of radically generous. They're selling pieces of land. They're, they're taking the proceeds. They're laying at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles are distributing those resources to anyone who has need. We went in on that. And so they, they conceived to go ahead and sell land that they owned, And they took the money that they got from it, but they only took part of it to the apostles' feet as though it were the whole amount. So you see what's happening there. They wanted a claim. Last week we looked briefly at Barnabas, did the same thing, and he was called the son of encouragement. So there was a a renown going on where the Spirit of Christ is moving through his church. Needs are being taken care of. People are being healed. And they wanted in on that and yet they failed to get it. Why? Why is it that they failed to get what was going on? Dr. Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, writes this, Look, the primary way to define sin is not just doing bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance purpose and happiness than your relationship with God. The Christian's primary responsibility is not so much watching out for the bad things, don't do that, don't do that, right? The things that can really drag you down, they're obvious, they're big, and we do need to be aware of those things. But the primary responsibility of Christians, watch out for the good things. Well, you might ask, how can it be A problem to want good things. How can it be a problem to want those things? Roger Clemens was one of the most dominant pitchers in Major League history. 354 wins. 4,672 strikeouts. The third most all-time in Major League history. He was an 11-time All-Star and two-time World Series champion. He won seven awards during his career, most of any pitcher in Major League Baseball history of this particular type of award. He was a talented pitcher. And yet, just a few days ago, a four-year court battle ended. Now, Clemens had just finished a long battle in court concerning his alleged use of steroids and lying abuse to Congress. That was what the court battle was about. Proceedings were complicated by prosecutorial misconduct, leading to a mistrial in the very first case. And just a few days ago, he was found not guilty on all counts of lying to Congress. However, various sports commentators don't believe that the finding of the court establishes his innocence. Gabe Feldman is a professor and the director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and the associate provost of NCAA compliance at Tulane University. And he writes this. Yes, Clemens was found not guilty on all counts, But let's be clear, this doesn't mean that Roger Clemens is innocent. It doesn't mean that he never used performance-enhancing drugs. It only means that the government failed to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Roger Clemens lied about not using HGH. Now, for a moment, just for a moment, assuming Professor Feldman is right in his assessment that being found not guilty on all counts doesn't mean that Clemens is innocent. Let's just presume that for a moment. I don't want to be unfair, but... Go along with me for a moment. What would provoke someone like Clemens, one of the most dominant pitchers in Major League history, to take illegal performance-enhancing steroids near the end of his career? Joints wear down. Performance wears down as you get older. It becomes difficult. And when you're known as one of the best, longing for a claim can bring you into temptation to go into that kind of an area. This is an example of taking a good thing. Clemens had professional prowess and a claim that it brings. And making a good thing into an ultimate thing. If the weight of our hope for what makes us who we are is put into one thing and that one thing is threatened, it shakes us to our core. And often we'll try to do anything that we can to prevent the loss of that one thing that we think we need. The great danger to the triumph of Jesus' ministry in your life regarding a claim is a seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, to your purpose, to your happiness than your relationship with God. The great danger is failure to take a claim from God for who you are and attempt to take a claim from something or someone else instead. So a claim is one of the things that threatens the triumph of Jesus' ministry in our life. It's taking the good things in life and turning them into ultimate things, thinking that we need them in order to be whole, secure, significant confident. But in addition, not only is a claim something that comes at us as a formidable foe in the Christian life, obsession is. Verse 3 says, as Peter said this to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? I uh, read uh, a definition for the word obsession, and it says the domination of one's thoughts or feelings by persistent ideas image or desire satan so filled and controlled ananias's heart that he was carried away in his actions now what does that look like thomas brooke was a puritan writer and he wrote a a little a book that's available by puritan paperbacks is that is that the name of that press do you know the one puritan puritan what yeah, no, I'm missing the I'm missing the um, the publisher. There's a publisher that, that goes ahead and publishes paperback versions of all of the old uh, out of print books, especially by the Puritans. And the Puritans were an interesting lot because they existed before the dawn of modern day psychology. And we talked about that before how their treatment of the heart spiritually is unique in in the unfolding of reformed faith in history because they look at it before. Uh, our culture began to psychologize and overpsychologize who we are. It's not that we're less than psychology would tell us in some cases, but there's, a, there's the uh, temptation to take psychology as a discipline and look only through that lens and define us by only that lens, right? But uh, Thomas Brooks has a, a little paperback called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he said he went through great struggles and spiritual tack when he was writing it because he was trying to uncover what he as a pastor saw in people's lives over and over again the tactics that Satan would use to bring them down. And so in that book he talks about many different kinds of things. One illustration he has is Satan loves to show the bait but hide the hook. Show the bait but hide the hook. Ananias and Sapphira saw... The bait of having the apostles and growing community hold them in high esteem for giving what was theirs to those who had need. They saw that bait. That looked attractive to them. The esteem of the community for helping others who had need. They wanted that acclaim, but they missed the hook. The hook was hidden from them in their growing obsession. In their willingness to misrepresent themselves to get the acclaim, they ended up testing God. What is it to test God? It goes way back to Genesis, the early accounts in Genesis. Has God really said? It questions his authority. It questions his voice, which is the only shaping voice that you should be listening to and taking your identity from. And it treats him as though he doesn't have the power to shape you. He doesn't have the authority to shape you. And instead, it starts to listen, you start to listen to other voices... Other things that would shape, other thoughts that would shape you that are not God's voice, not God's thought. The hook was erosion of their trust in God. When they began to take on this right to get a claim everything began to unravel, and it's rooted in the fact that they st- stopped trusting God. A claim from the community was more and more what they wanted, and less and less about who God is. I've talked with people in pastoral ministry over the years. I've talked to some of you. And one of the, one of the things that plagues us as Christians is getting to spaces where we're not able to really... Read the Bible and get a lot out of it. We don't sense God's presence there. We don't sense God's presence for a long period of time. And what we'll do instead is start to think about other things. And we'll let our minds be preoccupied with those things. Now, you see it also in verse 7. It says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. The best I can tell from what the commentators have to say in this text, that this is very much like, I wonder why he's taking so long. Did, he, did we get away with it? Right? I think she's. it's been three hours. What's going on? If you, if you who are married, uh, husbands, have gone out, and you've been three hours longer than you said you would be, do you not receive a call on your cell phone saying, is everything okay? Where are you? worried about you, right? Only here, there's a focus to their actions. Why was he taking so long? Did he get away with it? So, you you can show the bait and hide the hook. That's one of Satan's devices. Another device that Brooks writes about is the idea that there's a, a certain type of snake in the world that when it bites you, it's euphoric. Your whole... Uh, your whole body has a euphoric feeling to it, but very quickly that feeling dissolves and erupts into utter torment and degradation and death. We see this incident and we 'll talk a little bit about deceit and the, re- the results. We see this incident. Luke relates this incident to us saying that God does not like this; he does not like. Our preoccupation with other things aside from him is our bottom line. He does not like the fact that we would be so obsessed that we would actually forget him. We would place him out of our minds. Whether it's career or relationship. How many people have I talked to? How many Christian women have I talked to who have been so centered on wanting to get married, the cultural ideal? Marriage was the thing that would make them. Give them an identity, of security, significance, and confidence. How many Christian women have I talked to have gone ahead and married a non-Christian man because, they, because they, marriage was the most important thing? Do you know how many of those women that you talk to now are flourishing and doing well? It's a sad state of affairs because at the very core of your identity, you're separate. You're standing on different foundations. What is your thought life like? You remember the Archbishop William Temple quote, right? Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What is your thought life like? How does Jesus speak to you? Do you know? Are you reading your scripture? Do you understand what he would say to you? Do you have something to compare it to your thought life? Does your thought life match the way that Jesus would speak to you? Or, related, how does Jesus speak to others that he calls his own? Does the way that you speak to others match the way that Jesus would? Be on guard against thoughts that are not the way that Jesus speaks to you. Be on guard against words that you say to others that are not the way that Jesus would speak to others. Be on guard against obsession. You know how it goes. How many times have you walked down the street or been at your desk or been at the office or been with friends and you're preoccupied with something and you're thinking it over and you're mauling it over from every other perspective that you can think of and it is filling your mind. Are you praying those things or are you trying to parse it out yourself? Be careful with fixating your thoughts. There's a a place in Scripture where Paul says, take every thought captive make it obedient to Christ Jesus. We're able to do that there's a great place that's been a, a, a solace to me over the years in Philippians. Forwards, think on these things. Meaning, you can direct your thought life, and the things he lists are noble and pure and trustworthy and excellent and praiseworthy. And there, there are various ways that we can direct our mind. But be careful when you start to obsess about things. It is not the sign of Jesus' voice, and that's something that. Luke is trying to get across. Know Jesus' words. Study them. Study the gospel. Don't seek to read for information. Seek to read for formation. Be formed by the Spirit through His Word. It's a primary way that He works. So acclaim and obsession are threats to the triumph of Jesus' ministry unfolding in the life and empowering the life of a believer. But lastly, deceit is a threat. I'm going to give you some here, it becomes evident when you read in the Greek that the word that was used when Ananias put aside for himself when he kept things back when he was misappropriating things there's a, a place in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures which was the popular translation of the day there's a place that uses that exact same word for put aside for oneself, keep back And it's the place in Joshua 7 where Achan misappropriated part of what had been dedicated to God. He put it aside for himself, despite the command not to. And it suggests that Luke meant to draw a parallel between these two accounts. You have to remember that in this time, the church is a reform movement within the body of Israel, within the nation of Israel. And so this word describing Ananias' actions is referring back to Achan. And he meant to draw a parallel between the sin of Achan as the Israelites began their conquest of Canaan and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira as the church begins its mission. And both of these accounts receive definitive and immediate judgment by God. Now, there's, in, by way of background... As we cover this account of deceit, I want you to know that I don't believe that this result for Ananias and Sapphira is a regular result that we will see as a result of our deceit in the life of the church today. Why do, I, why do I say that? Number one, I think here, because of the link between Achan and his sin and Ananias and Sapphira and his, their sin, And the idea that Israel, we're in a time of redemptive history where Israel is being formed. It's a reform movement to be the church, reform movement within the church. It's a punctuated moment within history, within redemptive history. God dealt with the people of Israel very directly and very quickly, often, through judgment. And we see that happening here. But we also see in other parts of the scripture... Dwayne, before he left, what was the one thing that he taught on that was so powerful? He taught on many things that were powerful. But everyone agreed that we saw a lot of power in him as he was uh, preparing to leave. What was he preaching on? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that is true, then how can this be normative? How can this be the regular way that it unfolds? So I'm suggesting that it's a punctuated moment in redemptive history to show the importance. Another example of this is in the way that we parent our children. One of the things that we're told in the Christian community to look out of the gospel as we parent is that we do not punish. We don't even use that word. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment. We discipline, as a father disciplines a loved child, but we do not punish because Jesus took it. So there's too much at odds in the rest of the fullness of the gospel to take this one moment and say, this is a regular moment, I've got to be frightened of God. If you were in Jesus, Jesus took judgment on your behalf. Decisively, finally, on the cross he said, it is finished. So God judges here. Verse 2 says, with his wife's knowledge, and we're talking about deceit, a big threat to the triumph of Jesus' ministry in our lives. Verse 2 says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 4 places responsibility squarely on Ananias for his action. Deceit tears apart the community even when the community is not a church. And Dusky was just convicted. His deceit tore apart That community. There's someone who counsels in this church who went to Penn State to be of assistance to all of those struggling with what his deceit meant. Now granted, it's not just the deceit that he used. It's what he actually did. And I've I've seen a lot of the reports on the news And here's the standard line, okay? Here's the standard approach to thinking about Jerry Sandusky and what he did. But he's a monster. I'm not that bad. He deceived everyone, but he's a monster. I'm not that bad. Now, the thing I want to push gently on us, it might be forcefully, you can tell me after. Is that this passage shows differently? Ananias and Sapphira died through the judgment of God for taking some money that was theirs rightfully and making it look like it was all of the money they had gotten. So to deceive those in leadership to get the acclaim that other people were getting. That's not what Jerry did, it's not even close. And they dropped down dead and were buried. David Brooks, uh, in his uh, New York op-ed column, was writing a review of Dan Ehrlich's new book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And he talks about the way that we as humans, in that book, Dan talks about the way that we... As humans, we'll justify ourselves for small indulgences and go ahead and take those. Right? We'll justify ourselves by as we're pretty good. We see ourselves as pretty good, and so we can justify the small deceit that we show throughout life. So this guy, Dan, uh, constructed various tests. One was that there was a blind and a sighted person in taxicabs, and the test was to see who the taxicab driver would cheat. And do you know in, the, in every test, when it happened, the taxi cab driver cheated the sighted person by going long ways around things and racking up fare and, you know, adding on other kinds of things. But the blind person was driven directly to where they were supposed to go, straight away, shortest distance between two points in a straight line. Why? Or a simple uh, experiment in a college dormitory where there were plates put out. On the plates were Cokes and one-dollar bills. What do you think disappeared from those plates? The Cokes. Everybody left the dollar bills. I can take a little bit because I'm good enough not to take this other piece here. The problem is, not only does our passage show it differently... The deceit, whether a little or a lot, is destructive to the community of God's people. A little ends up being a lot. One of the examples David Brooks uses in his articles is this idea of the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts has a robust elderly volunteer squad. About 300 people. Elderly people who run the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, particularly the concession center and uh, the store where things are bought. Now, that store brings about four hundred thousand in revenue in yearly, but there was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar loss each year. And so they were trying. To, they did some investigation. They realized that every member of those three hundred elderly people were helping themselves to just a little. Not a lot. To misrepresent, Peter says in the passage, is to lie to God, to test God. And God judged it. You remember that we said in the ascension that Jesus rose again so he could do what? That he could be available to each one of you, live inside of you with his power with His grace, with His peace, so that you can live life in a new kind of way. He's not limited to being in place physically, one person at a time after His ascension. He was able to come in and live life among us now. He's able to dwell in us. But to lie to the body, to lie to one another, is the equivalent of having yourself in vital organs. That's what Paul writes later. It's the equivalent of un, like killing yourself when we lie to one another. How can you do that? Because Jesus lives in us if we believe in Him through the Gospel, through the Holy Spirit. What is it like to lie to one another? My mother-in-law uh, died a few years ago. And at the end of... Uh, Everything we realized that she had had a heart attack that had had damage and it was enough damage to eventually kill her. But she took tests around that time when she had the heart attack and her body wasn't showing signs that she had the, had the actual attack. When the body lies to the body about what's going on, it undoes us. When we lie to one another because Jesus lives in us, we're lying to his spirit, not just one another. So, first, we covered a claim. The key point is that your primary responsibility is not so much watching out for the bad things in your faith. We've got to do that. But it's not so much that, it's watching out for the good things as well. Second, we covered obsession. The key point is to take care to match your thought life and your word life to the way that Jesus talks to those he calls his own. How does Jesus speak to you? How does he speak to others? And third, the point is that it dehumanizes you, but it destroys the community. The main idea that we're talking about here boils down to this. Jesus won the acclaim so that you don't have to struggle as an orphan. Trying for the acclaim of those to whom you so desperately want to belong or be valued by. Trying for the acclaim of that thing that you might achieve. Jesus has brought the acclaim of a father that can never be taken away from you. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Jesus himself said so. When the father says and looks at you... He does not say, ooh, you're pretty shady if you're in Jesus. He looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. As though you've lived the life that Jesus had lived and died the death that he had died. You're already valued infinitely more than you can ask or imagine by the one who matters ultimately. Live in life that. Later we see in the New Testament to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in line with the truth of the Gospel. Be filled with God's Spirit. Don't be filled. Don't let your heart be filled by Satan. Be filled with God's Spirit instead, who testifies with your heart that you're His child. Only He has the power to you in a way that frees you. Everything else dehumanizes you. And speak the truth in love. You know, when we tell people the truth, you know, I'm going to tell that person what I think. And it's the truth, but it's not done in love. It doesn't flow out of Jesus' spirit. It's not the way that Jesus talks to people. Because Jesus speaks the truth, he speaks it in love. Or if you're real loving to people and real encouraging to people, and you're never willing to confront when there needs to be confrontation, it's not Jesus' spirit speaking to people. In his love, he always speaks the truth as well as encourages. What are the steps? Find a handful of people that you can trust who aren't afraid to tell you when you've blown it that much. Find a group of people that you can trust and share with them the good things that you enjoy in life. Discuss them together. Enjoy them together. But also ask them to consider with you in prayer Is there any danger of you turning one of the good things in your life into an ultimate thing? Is there any danger? of, Or trace the moments when you fall spiritually with them. We all have them. We fall down spiritually. Trace those moments with them. Back to the good things that you were trying to get, but prevented from having. Prevented from having. And finally, pray about these things in your life together. The Lord loves you. He wants to make you like him. He's promised to do so. He's promised to complete the work that he's begun in you. Are you going to let him? Are you going to stand against, are you going to stand against the things that threaten Jesus' triumph in his ministry through his spirit? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this passage It's hard. It's difficult to look at the things that would threaten the beauty of your love to us. And yet there are things. Things like acclaim. Things like obsession. Things like deceit. They're not of you. Instead we ask that you would make us a community that flourishes in the richness of your gospel by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, that we might love one another in fantastic ways, not just terminally casual ways, but in deep, gospel-enriched, Holy Spirit-driven ways, where we're truly coming alongside of one another, where we truly know what's going on behind the scenes, where we're truly made new by your Spirit day by day. And will you let us be a community, that witnesses to the world that your gospel is true, the good news of what you've done is true, and that you make it manifest in us, that we might be a good witness for you. Be with us now. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.